Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. The the scripture that I will be reading from this morning is um, John 6, 67, John chapter 6, verses 67 through 69. Um, I'll be reading from the New, New King James Version. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the the Christ, the Son of the living God. You may be seated. God is good all the time. I visited with a, a couple years ago in ministry and... They were elderly at the time, in their late 60s, early 70s. Now, I say that, and I go, I wish I wouldn't have said elderly, because someone's not going to like that. Um, Try not to pay attention to that part, okay? But the husband had had only recently obeyed the gospel just a few years before that. So I was, I really had to meet this guy. I was thinking, you know, a guy at that point in his life obeying the gospel. And and so I go out and meet with him and his wife, and his wife is just sweet as pie. He was a nice guy too, but he was kind of one of those old men, right? And and you had to get to learn him to know when he was playing with you or not, because you'd think he's he's just kind of an old codger. He's just a grumpy old man. But then he'd give a, a little grin out of the side of his mouth and you'd know, oh, he's playing with me. But anyway, we were sitting there and visiting, and I asked him, I said, I said, now I heard that you just recently obeyed the gospel a few years ago. I said, tell me about that, you know, and he wasn't a man of many words. He said, I obeyed the gospel a few years ago. I was like, okay, I was like, well, did, uh, did you grow up going to church? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so he, I was having to dig. He wasn't wanting to give a whole lot. But now his wife had always gone to church and tried to take the children to church as well. And as we spoke, he, he told me something. I've never forgotten this. He said, I wish I'd been faithful when I was a lot younger. And I said, well, why is that? He said, for the sake of my children. He said, I've got a, I've got a, a couple of daughters that I feel I influenced to the point that they won't even go to church today. And I feel like if I'd have been faithful when I was a younger father, I I think they might have been Christians too. I never forgot that. And he has since gone on to be with the Lord and his sweet wife is still living and doing well as far as I know. But an article from 2019 has the title, Most Teenagers Drop Out of Church When They Become Young Adults. It reports that 66% of American young adults who attended church regularly for at least a year as a teenager say they also dropped out for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22. This is according to a study performed by LifeWay Research. The the good news is, 
is that number is down from 2007, which was 70%. So there's a little bit of a silver lining. I was intrigued to discover the reasons for why it is that they chose to leave. I want to suggest that we buy a brand new clicker. And the church said, amen. Okay. The top five reasons why they left, 34% say they just moved to college and stopped attending. 32% they said church members seem judgmental or hypocritical. 29% said they didn't feel connected to people in the church. 25% said they disagreed with the church's stance on political or social issues. And 24% simply said their work responsibilities kept them from attending regularly. Now, when we look at all of these reasons, not to say any of them are invalid, but it is to say you can see there's a shift in personal priorities. And that's exactly what that study goes on to report. And I would add that a part of that shift isn't entirely the fault of these young adults. Their parents may have very well set the example to be nominal Christians. That is, there are some things that we can put before the Lord, and it's okay. Now, I know, I fully believe, and I don't know if you feel the same way as I do, I believe that parenting is a gambling act. You do the absolute best at the time according to what you think you know, and you just hope it turns out all right. Some of you have lamented the fact that you were faithful Christians, you raised your children in faithful Christian homes, but yet one or more of them are unfaithful to the Lord. And you look and you go, what did I, where, where did I go wrong? Or maybe like the elderly gentleman that I visited with, he said, I wish I'd have been faithful when I was a younger father for the sake of my children. You know, there are some Christians who never had Christian homes or parents, but they came to faith despite their upbringing. But I want to look at this passage with you. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to John 6. And I want to look at this story to give it a full panoramic view so that we know what exactly is occurring. John chapter 6, if you begin at verses 1 through 14, you probably have a heading in your Bible that says, feeding the 5,000. So on one day, Jesus sees these, this great group of people and they've come to listen to him teach and to preach and to speak about the kingdom of God. And he has compassion on them, and he orders the disciples to make sure that they're fed. Of course, it's one of the miracles of Jesus in multiplying very little and feeding a great number of people. Now look at verses 25 and 26. And when they found him on the other, this is the next day, just so you know. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now look at how, look at his reply. Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Okay, picture this. There you have Jesus with 5,000 people, a lot of folks. I mean, you know, 
your mamas and your grandmamas want to know how many people's coming over for Thanksgiving dinner, and sometimes that's stressful. But you got Jesus with 5,000 people. He's teaching. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and it's kind of late in the day, and he sees that, you know, there's this group, and, and they've not eaten, so he says, you know, let's, let's feed them. The disciples go, eh, we really don't have a lot. Jesus says, that's okay. So he prays and blesses the food, and by the work of God, it's more than sufficient for everybody present. So the next day when they come to him, he confronts them. He says, now, you have not come because of the sign that you saw. That is how a little bit was taken and made a whole lot. You've come because you ate and were filled. You're not here because of your spiritual needs. You're here because of your physical needs. I think Jesus would tell us that you can't preach the gospel to an empty stomach. That it's necessary to meet the physical needs of people. But I think Jesus would also tell us that our mission as the church isn't to just meet the physical needs of people, but is to also meet their spiritual needs. And so we kind of get into this, it's one way or the other. No, all we got to do is just care for a person spiritually. Well, if you read your New Testament, there are plenty of passages that speak to taking care of brethren when they have physical needs. And then some say, well, we need to make sure that we meet people's physical needs because that's compassionate. But it's not very compassionate if we never bring up their soul and the need to know Jesus and obey the gospel. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. So he turns from their bodily need in verse 27 to their spiritual need. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Look down to verse 30 and 31. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Do you not remember what he just said? You've come not because of the sign you saw, but because you ate and were filled. Look for that bread. That bread of heaven. They say, well, what sign will you show me? If I'd have been Jesus, it's a good thing I'm not. If I'd have been Jesus, I said, I just told you about it. I did it yesterday. You want a sign? You saw it yesterday. Aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? He's so much more patient than I am with people. So they ask, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Look at verses 41 and 42. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They couldn't get past his statements. You've come not because of the sign that you saw. You've come because you were hungry and you were made full. You need to look for that bread of heaven. Okay, well now what sign or wonder are you going to perform to show us? 
that really just irks me. I really wish he would have replied with an overwhelming sense of sarcasm to that, but he's God in the flesh and much greater than our fickle emotions. And so then he goes on to explain that he is the manna. He is that bread from heaven. And they're going, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, who we've known our whole lives? How can he say that he's the bread of heaven? And so he explains the meaning to them in verses 53 through 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, if you read that, you go, that's an odd passage. Why would Jesus talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? I mean, that sounds like cannibalism, right? Uh, keep in mind that the Gospel of John was the very last Gospel account composed towards the end of the first century. So he has written this gospel account for the church. And it's possible, I've seen a few commentaries and interpretations, it's possible that they would have understood that as the Lord's Supper. The bread is the body of the Lord, the cup is the blood of the Lord, Repre obviously not literally, but representing that. But when he says this, it was difficult to understand. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When you add to the fact that Jesus has said something very difficult to understand, and the fact that he rightly called it, they came for their physical needs to be met. So you come for, imagine someone coming to the church or to the caring and sharing building in need of something. And maybe we helped them the day before. Only this time when they come, we go, you know what, we want to tell you about, uh, what do you need? I need more clothing. Okay, okay. Let me tell you about being clothed with Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and you know, you're willing to confess He is Son of God and repent of your sins and are buried in baptism, you are therefore clothed with Christ. You have physical clothing, which everybody needs. But you need, as we all do, to be clothed with Jesus. People probably look at us and go, y'all weird. Turn around and just walk right off. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He met the physical need on day one. On day two, he had to try and meet the spiritual need. And they're like, I, I don't get it. What, what is he saying? You know, that's, that's something I, I often have to ask when I'm around parents with little children. And because, you know, parents can understand what their children are saying. And you go, how are you? What did he say? He said, good morning. Okay. Good morning to you. 
I'm not going to ask that time, right? It is, we, Stephanie could understand our children better than I could. Uh, and she still can to some degree. What does that mean? Well, Jesus has said something that was hard for these disciples to understand. And because they didn't understand it, because they were confused, or, and because their physical need wasn't met, look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Here's another way of putting it. They left. They walked away from God's Son. If you come to Jesus for a superficial reason, you'll easily walk away. Stephen Cole says this. He says, if you have been a Christian for a while, you've ridden the roller coaster of great joy in seeing someone become a Christian, followed by awful disappointment as the same person later fell away from the faith. For a while, they seemed to be dramatically changed. They got involved in the church. They were zealous for the things of God, but then a difficult trial hit. Perhaps they had conflict with someone in the church, or perhaps personal health problems or the loss of a loved one. Their zeal cools off, and gradually they stop coming to church, and every effort to restore them fails. And today, they're back in the world. Last Sunday, a friend of mine who's a preacher in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, he sent me a text message Sunday night when I got home. And it was, I'm like, this is the new world we're living in. But he sent me a text message and he, he said, have you ever had anybody message your church saying they wanted to be a member? I was like, what do you mean? message the church. I mean, like text message? He said, no, they watch your online live streaming services and they want to join the church as online members. Does that sound weird to y'all? <laughs> it does. He, I said, I, I, said I don't think we've gotten anything like that. He said, we have had three in the last week. He said, what, what do you think y'all would do if y'all had that? I would, if I had to guess, we would probably say, as we do to anyone who wants to place membership at Glendale Road, you need to come meet with the elders. Oh, but we live in Sarasota, Florida. Well, sorry, that's not going to work. You're welcome to, you know, watch the services anytime you like, but... We can't, our, excuse me, our elders cannot shepherd people through these lenses. This is meant, let me tell you this, the live stream, the radio, it's meant for outreach purposes. It is also meant to be something of an aid to those who are unable to make it to church. But there are many of you watching, and I love you dearly, but that has become your substitute for coming. And you have no valid reason. If you could honestly say that it was because of health or it was because of 
concern because of this pandemic. We all understand that and we want you to be safe and take precautions for your health. But be honest, some of you have just gotten in the habit of having couch church in your pajamas with coffee. It's not that you're being cautious. It's not that you're uh, bedridden and unable to come. It's that you've just quit coming. That doesn't mean you've walked away from the Lord. But you know, it always begins in small steps. I was glad that we had this when the whole world shut down. But it was never meant to be a replacement. One of the things that many Christians lack, and at times I include myself in this, is a sense of commitment. I want to read to you a story. I love this story. I came across it years ago, and it's the story of a soldier who was awarded the Medal of Honor. It's pretty lengthy, so bear with me. On the morning of May 2nd, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area in Vietnam to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met with heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to the intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavidez was at the forward operating base, monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavidez voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move or to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing while he jumped from a hovering aircraft and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of the extraction aircraft and the, loaded, uh, the loading of the wounded and the dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe, uh, severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the leader's body, Sergeant Benavidez was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and the helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavidez secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage, where he aided the wounded 
out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavidez mustered his strength, began calling in tactical airstrikes, and directed the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permitted another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to ferry his comrades to the aircraft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. And upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the aircraft from an angle, angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring the remaining wounded. Only then, an extremely serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavidez was a Green Beret, and after that reading, before giving him the Medal of Honor, President Reagan read this. He allowed uh, Sergeant Benavidez to give a few words. And when he did, he said that he was in such bad shape that they had put him in one of the body bags and he said they were zipping it up. But he was so wounded that he couldn't speak. And he said that as the doctor or the corpsman was zipping that bag up and got to around to his face, he just blew as hard as he could, spitting all the blood into that guy's face so that he knew he was still alive. Most of us would have quit a long time before that brave soldier did. Most of us would have never volunteered to go in to that environment, let alone enduring all the wounds that he did. <clears throat> but he had something that every Christian needs Commitment. Commitment to God first and foremost. Well, I want God, but I don't want anything to do with the church. If you're committed to God, you cannot but be a part of His church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And if He built it, it's because He wanted us to be a part of it, not to walk away from it or from Him. It's referred to in Scripture as His bride. You don't get the husband while at the same time ignoring the bride. In the details of that study that I read at the beginning, there were three factors discovered relative to those who stayed and who remained faithful. Now, I want to remind you that this isn't a guarantee. It's just a great probability. Number one, they had been converted. Sounds simple enough, right? Let me emphasize they had been converted. Sincerely converted. 
Not that they confessed, repented, and were baptized, but that they had been sincerely converted, including those. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Many of us come here every week, and not all of us are sincerely converted. We have obeyed the gospel, but we are not sincerely converted. There's a difference. Secondly, they have been equipped and not entertained. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. Parents of youth, I want to ask you a question. Do your middle and high schoolers care as much about going to a devotional as they care about going on a white water rafting trip with the youth group? If they only want to go to the fun things, maybe as moms and dads, we need to sit them down and have a talk about that. Because what they're going to do is they're going to associate fun with Jesus. And when it's not fun in their eyes, they're going to walk away. The final point is that those who stay had parents that taught them the gospel. Proverbs 22, verse 6, very infamous. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, Proverbs aren't guarantees. They're wise sayings. And so, as a wise saying, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't mean it's a guarantee. It means if you do this, there's a high probability that this will be the outcome. As I mentioned, kids raised in faithful Christian homes rebel, and kids who grow up in dysfunctional families become Christians. They become faithful followers of Jesus. Sometimes those who lose their way return as the prodigal to a loving father. And I want to emphasize that, that though they walked away, we don't know if any of them ever came back. But the good part of the story is, is that you can always come back. This isn't a sermon just for teens or parents of teens or young adults. It's for all of us. Have you walked away from Jesus? Look at verses 67 through 69, what was read at the beginning. After the disciples go back and they walk with him no more, Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Whew. This is a gut check. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those who stayed didn't stay because of the crowd. They stayed in spite of the crowd. They stayed because they believed. Not because of physical needs, but because of faith. 
Because Jesus is God's Son, Peter says, that's why we stay. When we all have an abundance of excuses for walking away, I want to urge us to remember one thing. Jesus is enough of a reason. Jesus is enough of a reason. So if you have walked away, become committed if you hadn't already. Renew your commitment if it needs renewing. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. The father wasn't waiting so that when his son returned, he could lecture him or beat him or whip him for his disobedience and prodigal living. He was waiting hopeful. And he received lovingly the son that had left. So when we walk back, when we come back, God receives us with love, compassion, and most important of all, forgiveness. So come back if you need to as we stand and sing.